This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Tana Douglas, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. So Tana is coming to us from LA, and you'll know why in a second when I introduce her. Feeling really lucky to be speaking with you today. I mean, it's a terrific book. I mean, wow, I'm surprised you're still alive, but we will talk about that in the best possible way, you know. (laughs) Uh, But we'll talk about that and your adventures. I mean, what a remarkable life that you have been living. Tana was 16 when she took her first job as a roadie with ACDC. Now recognised as the world's first female roadie, Tana has worked alongside some of rock and roll's biggest names, such as ACDC, Deep Purple, ELO, Elton John, In Excess, Iron Maiden, Lenny Kravis and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, plus many more, right? Her career has spanned three continents and more than 30 years. As I said, she currently resides in LA and this is her first book and it's called Loud. I mean, I love the title of this book and the cover as well, actually. And uh, it's the classic, what goes on tour stays on tour, right? So what a big life. Firstly, I want to start so you, you grew up here in Australia. Where did you grow up and what led you to be a roadie in the first place with ACDC? So let's go way back. Way back, way back. You know, I started off my adventures in Brisbane in Queensland and um, after a very short time, like four years, um, I got basically my mother absconded with my sister and myself in the middle of the night and went on the lamb, so to speak. She ran away from uh, my father she was just running ever since, you know. So we, I spent the years from the age four to the age 11 constantly moving in and out of different cities, in and out of different towns. We went all the way up the coast to Townsville and then we came all the way back down to Melbourne. So, you know, and, and everything in between. So, you know, I think I, I, I can count 11 schools by the time I was 11 years old. So... That gives you an idea of how much moving we did. So and even though that was a bad thing, it did serve me well in the future. You know? So so when I came to going on the road and touring, I was a natural. I was mm. used, to, used to living out of a suitcase and disappearing in the middle of the night and all those things. So, you know, it's funny how things work out. Do you remember it as a happy time, like as an adventure, or do you remember, were you one of the one of these children that was stressed and worried for your mother? I mean, how do you look back at that time? Yeah, I, it, it, my, my sister and I, my sister was like four years older than me, and we were the adults of the household. I mean, she she was in no condition to be any, mm. in control of anything, you know, so she, she was just an incredibly unhappy person, and I think a very unstable person, and we put that down to the fact that she had a really severe motor accident when she was young and we think there may have been head damage that no one really knew about because she certainly wasn't 
wasn't right. There was something absolutely not right about her. So, you know, for her to be dragging us around the countryside and, you know, putting us in the back of the car and, you know, just strange things would, would happen all the time. So it was quite nerve-wracking. It was quite nerve-wracking. And at first we thought it was an adventure, but that faded very quickly when we realised that we were in trouble here. There's something wrong, you know. We need to figure this out. Unfortunately, she never did figure it out and it got to a point where my sister left as soon as she could. She left, I think she was maybe 15 or 16 years old, and then there was only me left in the house and that's when it turned really bad. So that's that's when she started getting physically, more and more physically abusive and verbally abusive and it was just it, it, we couldn't continue. So I got sent, sent to my father. And had you known your father? Well, I mean, I hadn't seen him since I was like three or four years old. So it was quite a, you know, quite an awesome in the bad sense of the word <laughs> experience by going like, oh, I thought, because we were told that's who we were running from this whole time. So I thought I was being like handed over to, you know, this ogre sort of person. But, you know, he really wasn't. And, and that's not how, what the story was at all. But And so I finally found that out, which was good. But, you know, it was a bit late. A lot of damage had been done by then, you know. So I just didn't I didn't fit into that family environment either, you know, which was only him and his mother. So it still really wasn't another family, you know. So I never just never had that growing up. And you wouldn't have had the solace of uh, friendships as well because you were moving around so much that you did, probably didn't have time to form friends, did you? Well, you learn to form friends really quickly, right. you know, and, and you'd learn to do that <laughs> usually by getting in trouble and, and getting up to all sorts of like extreme things, you know, that young children do and think are really cool at the time, but they're really dangerous. <laughs> so I was always one for that. It's like, oh, climb up that building and jump off the roof. I can do that, you know, because yeah. then all the kids will talk to you. You know, they think you're like, oh, some hero, you know. So, I mean, it went that way, you know. Does it build solid, strong friendships? No, but you learn to talk to people quickly and 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 let go of people quickly, mm. you know. Mm. So you wouldn't have been thinking um, <laughs> that this is a career goal to be a roadie, right? <laughs> that wouldn't have been on the agenda. Uh, had you thought about what you were going to be when you grow up? Like, does that? No. 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 No, I lived in the moment. You know, I was just, I was happy to get through a day. Yeah. That was that was as far ahead as I mm. looked. It's like, are we going to get through today? Okay, lying in bed, we got through today. What's tomorrow going to bring? Usually it wasn't something good. So, you know, it was just living in the moment. And again, you know, that sort of prepped me without knowing it for the career that I chose because that's what it is. Everything's in the moment. You're doing everything in the day of the show and you're breaking it down and then you're going to the next show. So it, without knowing it inadvertently, I was like in training from a really young age. <laughs> so tell me how, how you came to be. Was being a roadie your first job? Because you're only 16. Yes, it was my first job. I had just been running around the countryside as a hippie, you know, a young child and hooked up with a bunch of hippies and they went all the way up and down. They travelled constantly as well. They played music all the time. They all had guitars and drums or whatever. So I had that fix of music that I needed and I was quite happy, you know. And again, you know, I didn't need anything because I hadn't had anything. So I didn't miss anything. You know, there's no such thing as homesick. I mean, which home would I call home out of the tens of homes that we'd had? Do you know what I mean? So it just, you know, just became natural. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get the job? Well, funnily enough, I was 
in the in King's Cross, which was really dangerous in those days. It really was a dark place in those days. And uh, I got into some trouble with um, a pimp who who had a, a I don't know a group of girls, I guess you'd call it, who worked for him. And they were really young girls like myself, maybe a little bit older. And he decided that I should be one of his working girls, you know, and I decided that that just definitely wasn't going to happen. But um, he basically kidnapped me one night at gunpoint and um, tried to hit me up with heroin and, and get me, you know, as part of one of his working girls. But, you know, luckily I managed to escape from him, which is, you know, wasn't a simple feat in itself. But uh, from that I realised that, you know, I shouldn't be in the cross anymore on my own. It's too dangerous and so I moved into a flat with a couple of young girls who were into music and totally away from that scene. They didn't know anything about the dark side of the cross. And, you know, they took me down to the Whiskey A Go Go one night and um, I, I met a road crew person called Wayne Swampy Jarvis and he basically introduced me to the industry and it was fascinating to me. I, was, I found that I was more interested that night at that show and everything that was going on around the stage and the actual musicians on the stage. So so when I asked him what it was, what are all these people and what are they doing? And he's like, oh, they're roadies. It was like, wow, that's a job, you know. <laughs> Sounded great to me. It never occurred to me that there weren't any women doing it, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was. Where were you living when you're in the cross? Were you were you homeless, or you had a place that you were staying? Uh, no, I had a place. I, I had a home when I was when I was in the cross. I mean, I was living when I first moved to the cross. Um, I was just outside on Paddington, and um, with the girls, I was on um, uh, just down from the Alamein Fountain there. So yeah, I was I was always had somewhere to live in those days. You know, for for what it's worth. I mean, if you call. You know, in the rainforest, living in a lean-to shack, that's still a place to live, isn't it? <laughs> mm. it's, you just don't set your goals too high, you know. <laughs> I love how upbeat you are. So tell me, so you've, you're looking around you and you're thinking this is something that I might want to do. Firstly, you're 16 and, two, you're a female. So how how do you kind of wiggle your way into that? Well, it was coincidentally the two young girls that I moved in with, one of them was from Melbourne and she decided that she was going to go home because her parents <laughs> her parents were sick of sending her money and she didn't have a job and and they wanted her home. They said, if you want money, you want a flat of your own, you've got to move back to Melbourne. To, they, they didn't want her in Sydney anymore. So we we're trying to get her a lift back down to Melbourne and she knew this band that came to town called Fox. And so we all we all went off to see the show. This is my second show I'd ever been to. The first one was the one we just talked about. So the second show, and the idea was she's like, oh, I'm going to ask them and see if they'll give me a lift back to back to Melbourne. You know, she had a little bag with her. And so, you know, we all go to the show, the, the three of us girls, you know. And, you know, we watched the show and it wasn't bad. You know, they had a couple of good songs and it was like, oh, these guys are right. And they were quite a nice bunch afterwards, you know. She introduced us all and we're all just sitting around chatting, you know. But no one had mentioned about giving her a lift back to Melbourne. So I thought I'll broach the subject here. And it's like, so, guys, um, do you think you'll be able to give her a lift back to Melbourne? You know, she needs to get back to Melbourne, you know. And they're like, well, the band's like, oh. And they look over at the stage. This one guy, Peter Laffey, he looks over at the stage and he goes, he goes, you know, if the road crew get out of here tonight, she can go back with them in the truck. Otherwise, forget it, you know. So I'm like, oh. So I look over at the stage and the two guys look a bit worse for wear. They're sort of staggering around, not getting a lot done. And I think they've been drinking as much as the band had, you know. <laughs> so, so I look over there and I go and I look at her and it's like, 
oh, this doesn't look good. So I said, tell you what, why don't I give them a hand? And so the band all look at each other and laugh, you know, they're like, <laughs> and then the, and so Peter, who's a real joker, he's yelled over to the crew guys, hey, guys, she's going to come and give you a hand, you know, and they're like, what? No, but they can't say no because that's their boss talking to them. They're like, oh, no, you know. So I go over there, hi. <laughs> and you're like, trying to help her out so they can leave. I'm trying to help her out. That's my yeah. whole reason for doing it. And so they're like, oh, here, put away the drum kit. So they sort of showed me basically what to do with that. So I did that. Then they're like, oh, she's still here. Um, here, roll up these cables. So they showed me how to, it's a proper way to roll a cable. They showed me how to do that. And I caught that really quickly. They're like, oh, well, hang on, here's, here's a bunch more. So, so they just kept giving me things to do and they were really sort of at the point where I think they were actually appreciating the help a little bit if their egos could get get over it a bit. You know? <laughs> and then it came the time to loading the truck and I'm like, oh, I'll give you a hand. They're like, no, 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 this is. And I said, I can lift anything you can lift, you know. Boom, and I start lifting stuff and they're like, wow. And I think they were surprised how strong I was. So anyway, long story short, she gets a free lift back down to Melbourne. They get out of there that night. And then a couple of weeks later, they came back up to do more shows and they called the flat where I was living. And they said, you know, you want to come down and give us a hand again? <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, do I get paid? They said, yeah, we'll pay you. And it was like, okay, cool. <laughs> so down I went. We did a few shows around Sydney and then they said, you know, if you if you want to keep doing it, we're going back to Melbourne. Do you want to come back with us? And it's like, yeah, because I wanted to get out of the cross. You know, that was my thing. So you know, it served a dual purpose. It was great, you know, so it was a good start. But mm. purely coincidental, yeah. But there is a lot of learning to be done. It's not a matter of just rolling cables, is it? It's not a matter oh, of... Oh, absolutely not. No, there's no. a ton of learning and, and you need yeah. to learn it or you're going to hurt yourself or you're going to hurt someone else. Yeah. So there is, but, it's serious, yeah. Because you're setting up as well, aren't you? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you're, so, you're playing with electricity, you're doing all yeah. sorts of things, you know. yeah. And you, you're doing it in unusual, usually it's dark. Well, you're packing up when it's usually dark, isn't it? Yeah, you do. Well, you're doing it in the dark. You're doing it in really old venues. You're doing it yeah. in places where the wiring's not necessarily safe and, you know, there's or there's there's moisture on the floor or there's water somewhere or, you know, and none of these things are good for electricity, you know. So it's like you've got to be very careful, you know. Mm. Last thing you want to do is kill your boss, you know. Mm. And everyone else around you. <laughs> and, and everyone else around you. Yeah. Or yourself. That's oh, not yeah. good either. <laughs> no, that's not great. And especially you, you've survived to this this ripe old age of 16, you want to keep going, right? Exactly, uh, exactly. After all you've been through, you don't want Just to get getting started. That's exactly. Right. Don't cut me off now. That's right. So tell me, how did you um, how did you uh, meet um, ACDC? I mean, how did that all happen for you? Well, this, that band that I went back down to Melbourne with was a band called Fox. And, um, you know, they had a hit song at the time and they had some, you know, they had a pretty good set and, you know, decent following. But... You know, the bookings were starting to dry up a little bit, you know, and, you know, it just there were cracks in the band. We didn't know how long they were going to last. And so, you know, what happened was, you know, one of the people, we'd go every Monday, we would go into the booking agent and pick up our worksheets for the week, which would tell us what, what shows we had that week. And, you know, I was in there picking up the worksheet and, you know, one of the bosses came to me of the, the booking agency and said, you know, hi, Tana, how are you doing? You know, I'm like, oh, I'm good, you know, and it's like, you know, have you ever thought of working for another band? You know, and I said, well, no, <laughs> it didn't occur to me. I mean, I was living still one day at a time, you know what I mean? So it was like, no, 
And he said, well, you might want to think about it because, you know, I said, well, no, I'm, these guys are good. And he said, yeah, you know, trying to be loyal to them, you know, like they're good, you know, and it's like, yeah, but, you know, their bookings are slowing down and, you know, and we don't know how much longer they're going to be together and, you know, you should get a gig before they break up or you're not going to have anything or you're not going to have a job. And it was like, ah, not have a job. Oh, no. What? Wait. So I panicked at that point. When I hadn't seen that coming, you know. So he said, well, listen, we've got a band coming down to Melbourne from Sydney and, you know, we're looking for a crew and we're going to put them all in a house together and, and the crew will live in the house and, you know, it's, it's going to be good and, and there's going to be plenty of work and, and, you know, it's going to be great. So that was, you know, the, the lead into the starting of ACDC, you know. So I went upstairs and met the other manager, Michael Browning, and he threw me in his car and took me around the Lansdowne Road to meet the boys. And um, just from there, it didn't stop, you know. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I want to talk about, so that was it. So you crew and you get to live in a share house, right? Yes. Uh, so you're the only female. Yes. In the share house. Yes. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, did you notice that? Oh, <laughs> uh, not really, no. Because you no. know, I've been living I've been living in a hippie commune and you know what I mean? It's, so it was all there was always people everywhere anyway. So it didn't really there was probably less people in this house than any other house I'd stayed in since I'd left home, you know. So, right. so it didn't didn't bother me at all. And we, I, all, I, we all had our own rooms, you know, yes. it's not as though we're all bunking in one room together. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't think that. But I thought that, like, was it so you weren't doing all the washing up and the cooking and, you know. Oh, no. I, no, so no, was, no, 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 no. Talk to me about what a day in that house looked like. Well, a day in that house was pretty hectic, really. You know, we'd, we'd all, you know, we'd get up, you'd, you know, you'd get up in the morning and, you know, grab a cup of tea or something like that. And usually someone would arrive, like one of the girl fans would arrive and they'd sort of like, oh, have you guys had breakfast yet? Or, you know, make toast or whatever, or they'd start cooking something for lunch or, and they'd do all the cleaning and cooking. You know, these girls would just appear, you know, and Angus with his chocolate cake fetish and his milk, you know, someone would arrive with a gallon of milk and someone else would arrive with a chocolate cake and, you know, someone else would come over and decide that they'd cook a roast dinner or something. I mean, it was fabulous, you know. It was like better than room service, you know. And, no, I did not do any cooking or cleaning. No. I mean, I wasn't was, meaning to be sexist yeah. then, but I'm just. No, no, no. Like, I know. You know, the time, you know, and the perception. So yeah. you were by your fellow workers, co-workers, you were treated as an equal. Oh, exactly. Yeah. You know, and we had other stuff we had to do. You know, the equipment had to be looked after or set up for a rehearsal or if we had a show, we had to load all the trucks and then we had to leave. And, you know, other days, you know, I mean, occasionally in those very, very early days before we got Phil and Mark on board permanently, you know, we'd sit around and we'd listen to music and stuff like that. And that was that was a wonderful time, you know, and that's when they were doing a lot of writing 
and creating and stuff. So it was really nice to be sitting in the room and watching all that happen, you know. And, and again, still working because you're making sure the guitars are all right or, you know, if their amp's working properly or whatever, you know. So, you know, it was just a great atmosphere. It was a great atmosphere in that house. I love that house. Was it the family you were looking for? Absolutely. Absolutely. I thought I'd landed. Yeah. You know, and that's that's credit to the young family, you know, because they come from such a strong family unit and they have strong women in their family. So, you know, none of them felt threatened by me or or thought it was ridiculous or thought it was strange. They just thought it was was what it was, you know, there she is and she's our roadie, you know, mm. and that was great, you know, because, you know, some other bands might not have been as as open to that, you know. So I'm, I'm thankful to that. I'm thankful to them for that. Mm. So once the band starts performing, you're kind of, you know, you're on the road. That's why you call the roadie. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and there you are off, I don't know, five nights, ten nights, whatever that is, and what, you're sleeping in buses? Do, is that what happens? Tell me what. Well, not, like. not in the early days. Right? Well, well, unfortunately we did have a bus with ACDC, but it's not, it's not what you think when you think bus and touring with bunks and all that sort of stuff where you can sleep. This, this was a pig of a thing. This was like an old, <laughs> oh, it really was, it was hideous. Whoever looked at it and said this is a good idea should have been shot. <laughs> you know, it was just like, you know, broke down constantly. The heating didn't work. The air conditioning didn't work. The bus didn't work. It was just a nightmare. You know, we'd spent so long, so many times we had to push that thing. And it was big and we had all the equipment in the back half of it and just the bench seats in the front, which were really hard and really uncomfortable. And like in winter, we'd all huddle together and sort of like try and keep warm. It was terrible. It was horrible. You know, nothing, nothing at all sexual in it. We're just trying not to freeze to death. (laughs) It's terrible. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is it felt like, did it feel like an adventure or did it feel like a chore? Like, you know, working because it is physically hard work, isn't it? Oh, it's, 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 it's exhausting work, but it's all an adventure. I mean, the whole thing was an adventure, you know, because every time, every show you're in a different location, there's different people. There's different circumstances, you know, so everything's changing. You're meeting new people all the time. You're discovering new stuff all the time, you know, whether it's to do with work or whether it's socially. So it was exciting, you know, it was very exciting. You well, know, and, every and, day is different, isn't it? And, and every day is exactly every day is different, you know, even down to the size of a stage and where you can put stuff and then you've got to tell the band, look, you know, we've had to put this here so don't fall over it or, you know, whatever once the show starts because all of those things are really important as well. You can't just go and throw it all up on stage and tell them, you know, be careful out there, everything's moved, you know, because it's dark and they're all running around. You don't want them hurting themselves and running into something or falling over something, you know, and in those days everyone had cables on their equipments and microphones and stuff, so that was a whole mess in itself. You know, you had to try and keep everyone untangled, you know, so, yeah. So over the years you became experienced at this job and were you sought after? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, I felt myself a, a decent, really good reputation as being a hard worker, someone who could be relied on and, and someone who was like an innovative thinker, you know, you have a problem Ask her, <laughs> you know, ask her, this isn't working, what are we going to do? Ask Tana, she'll figure it out, you know, because I do, I think that way, you know, that's just my sort of, my, my thought patterns. So, you know, you throw, throw a disaster at me and I thrive, you know, it's like, oh, pressure, yeah, I'm good at that. 
you know, and that, again, that stems back to my early childhood, I think. So, you know, out of, out of a bunch of bad things in the very beginning, I think a lot of good things came out of it. It prepared me for a lot of things, you know. I mean, you know this as well as I do. You know, it could have gone either way for you, couldn't it? Oh, yeah. I could still be in King's Cross. Yeah. Or dead. Yeah. Or dead. Or dead. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But, I mean, obviously you had values. You, you know, you knew the, the, I mean, you know, working hard, showing up, you know, all those things that often people that come from uh, households that haven't been conventional, if you like, don't have because they haven't been taught them or they just don't know them or they didn't see that happening around them. But, I mean, you seem to have gotten that from somewhere and applied it to a career. I mean, I think that's extraordinary. I, I think it was survival, basic survival skills. You know what I yeah. mean? I figured I figured out really quickly that I need to become worth something. I need to have a value. And, and whatever that value is, I need to nurture it and I need to expand on it and I need to make it something that people recognise and go, oh, we need this. Let's talk to her. You know, so from a very early point, I never, I was never happy to just do the job. I would always do my job and then help someone else with their job or, or do my job better or find a way to do it better or, you know, make suggestions maybe. What if we did this? This would be really cool. Oh, that's a great idea. You know, or and, and you know, doing jobs that other people didn't want to do. You know, I mean, it didn't bother me. If it meant that I kept working and I kept learning stuff, then that's what it was. You know, I'm a naturally curious person and, you know, curiosity has got me in trouble several times. <laughs> but it's also served me well, you know. Yeah, very well. Tell me about your um, first experience of going overseas. Tell me about your first trip. Yeah, my first time going overseas, I went to um, I went over to England uh, via Amsterdam, actually. I went to Amsterdam first because... Um, you didn't need a, I didn't need any sort of return ticket. If you went straight to England, you had to have a return ticket. But if you went to Amsterdam, you could have a one-way ticket. And then if you came from Amsterdam to England, they didn't even check if you had a ticket, you know, so it was okay. How so, old I, were I could, you? Um, 17, because my dad had to sign my passport so I could leave the country alone. <laughs> Not very rock and roll, but, hey, I, I swallowed my pride if it meant I could leave, you know. <laughs> so, Yeah. I saw him, well, actually, I didn't even see him. We did it all over the phone and he sent my passport down to me and then I got on a plane and left out of Melbourne. And where were you going and why were you going? Well, originally, originally I was meant to go to America to do the second leg of the Rolling Thunder review. But that tour, I got a a call from the tour manager who I'd worked with on Neil Diamond. That's how that job came about. He offered me the job after I'd worked for him on Neil Diamond tour. And um, he said, you know what, T, he says, don't come to America. He says, it's not going to work, this tour. He said, he says, I'll keep keep in touch, though, because I'll, I'll find you a tour. You know, so he was still being supportive, but he didn't want me to go out there and then not be able to earn enough money to come home, you know. So, and sure enough, that tour fell apart maybe, I think it was like 10 days into it, you know, something that would never happen in this day and age. But <laughs> Bob Dylan lost lost interest and he was more interested in filming and doing some other thing and the whole thing just fell apart. So that's kind of hilarious, really, thought of it. So I was ready to go. So I thought, well, I'm going to go anyway. So, But I I went to England instead, you know. So I figured, you know, I'd check that out because I'd done more more tours with British people than I had with American people. And I thought, you know, it would be a little easier because being an Australian with, you know, visas and all that sort of stuff, you know, be, be able to stay there a lot longer. So because in those days I think you could stay till you're 27 years old without having to do anything, you know, So and you could work straight away, you know. So all of those things were important. So 
Yeah, so I turned up in England, which, and it was a bit rough in the beginning, you know. I'd, I'd done a status quo tour in Australia before I left as well, but those guys were in America on tour when I arrived, so that was a bit rough. And, um, you know, then, you know, I ran into a few people, but, you know, I, I felt bad saying, look, I don't have anywhere to live, I don't have any money, can you help me out? Because I'd never asked people for help, you know. And I found it very difficult to do. I just couldn't do it. So, I mean, I found myself sleeping on park benches on the odd occasion, you know, and, and that was that was bad. Yeah. <laughs> it was not good at all. Well, you know, I hope it was summer. It, well, it wasn't. It was just starting to be winter, actually, and that's when I had to get my act together and, like, mm. I needed to get a job because I cannot be doing this when it gets any colder. Mm. You know, it's just not going to happen. So, you know, that, that sort of got me in line and, um, and a friend actually gave me a car, which was Paul McCartney's car, <laughs> which was hilarious. He says, here, have this. It'll help you get around town To, I mean, I didn't have a driver's licence, didn't have anywhere to park the damn thing, didn't have any money to put gas in it, and I'm driving Paul McCartney's car around London. <laughs> it was pretty funny, with nowhere to live. <laughs> so, so I slept in the car. <laughs> oh, God. I, I just love your optimism. I love it. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, you, it's, it's, yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> And so what did you do? How did you get your first job? Well, I, finally, finally I sort of, I just took any work that I could get, you know. It's like I ended started doing backline again, so which is where I'd originally started. So I did backline tour and then I got another tour doing backline. And then finally and Quo came back from America and they decided that they wanted to um, build their own lighting rig and sound system because they were going to be touring nonstop for a couple of years and it'd be cheaper for them to build their own and own it than to rent one. So I got the job of building that system, which was great because that was a good solid month's work. And then once that was done, you know, just in time, just, you know, a month gave me enough time to find somewhere to live just in time to go on tour and not need somewhere to live. So (laughs) what do you, you can't win. But um, so then, yeah, then I was touring for nonstop for a couple of years with Quo. Like three or four years. When you look back on your career, are there highlights? Are there one tour that you preferred over another, or was there one disastrous tour that you know really rings? You know, you're just like, oh, thank God I got through that. Um, are there any highlights? Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, there's definitely highlights, but there's also disasters. I mean, a disaster tour to me was the Ozzy Osbourne tour, the Blizzard of Oz tour, the first one he did as a solo artist. That was a nightmare. Why? <laughs> well, because he was off his head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was off his head. I mean, he's a funny guy. You can't. The sad thing is, you can't stay mad at him because he's just like a little kid. You know, you've got to. <laughs> so I'd get angry with him, but then it's like, oh, what's the point? He just look at you, huh? <laughs> so you know, there was that, and Sharon, of course, was coming into her element on that tour, and she was a bit hard to handle at times. You know, so. That was a rough one. That was a rough tour. I got my heart broken on that tour as well, so that wasn't good. But, um, yeah, that was a rough one. Mm. Let's end on a highlight. On a highlight. What's a good highlight? You know, <laughs> something that I really enjoyed doing was, wasn't was so much a tour as, as a one-off show down to Peru. I went from Los Angeles down to Peru for uh, Carlos Santana. And, and I, I toured with Carlos in Australia, and then I'd done a couple of shows over in the UK with him a couple of years later, and now, and then I'd done a guitar player's 50th anniversary thing that Carlos was a part of, and this was his 50th birthday, I believe, 
and he wanted to play in Peru, Lima, Peru. And I thought, wow, that's exciting. I've never been to Peru. You know, this is this is how I make, fix my work schedule. Where haven't I been? I'll go there. <laughs> Not so, a bad way to run it. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was really interesting. That show it was great to great to see Carlos, and he was so happy playing in South Central America. You know, he was just like just on cloud nine on his birthday. Of course, I had had to fight my way out of there with the promoter who decided he didn't want to pay me, so I had to finally get all the money from him and gaffer tape it to me because the next day after the concert there was a coup. Wow. <laughs> and I, I got on the very last plane out with all the equipment. I got to the airport. I spent all night at the airport making sure all the equipment got on planes to get out, and by the time that was done I had to run across the tarmac and run into the airport and make sure that I got on the last flight out. And it was shut down for weeks. I mean, Peru, you couldn't, Lima, you couldn't get in and out for weeks. There was like military tanks going backwards and forwards on the streets and all these guys at the airport and black uniforms and machine guns. It was like, oh, get, and I've got all this money strapped to me. It's like, oh, no, if they search me, they're going to take it. <laughs> and you weren't searched on arrival? No, 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 this was oh, coming back into America. Yeah. No, no, I think, no, I, I think they, you know, I think word was out that this was the last flight out of Lima, Peru, just let them go, for God's yeah. sake, let them in. They got yeah, a passport, yeah. let them in, you know. Yeah. Yeah. They've been yeah. through enough. <laughs> Do you get to come back home a lot? I've been coming home, you know, I mean, I haven't been there since I think two years ago was the last time I was there. Mm. And um, that was for the launch of a book called Roadies that was uh, Stuart Coop's book. And that actually featured me for one of the opening chapter in the book. I was featured in I that. that, was that. A, yeah. So that was the last time I was home. I flew down to help promote that, which was great, you know. And like I say, like this book was meant to come out last April. So I was thinking, oh, well, that's good. That's only 18 months, you know. But now we had to, we lost another year because of COVID. So. Here we are. But as soon as I can travel again, I will definitely be doing so. So considering the past you've had, is there a place that you see as home? Yeah, Australia Australia will always be home. It will. I mean, there's just, there's no escaping that. It it always will be. And and I'll always be an Australian. You know, people say to me, you know, you're going to get your American citizenship. And it's like, no, I'm actually an Australian citizen. Thanks. Mm. I'm good. I'm all right. (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) You know, they say your accent's still really Australian. And it's like, well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Of course. Tana, I can't thank you enough. Um, the book is called Loud. Uh, congratulations. I mean, it really is just, it's a rollicking read. And you're a superstar. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I had a great time. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, 
grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.